Today we have Greg Butcher on the show. Are you a veteran or in real estate investing and looking to take it up a notch? Take your real estate asset management game up with Greg Butcher. With 18 years of active duty military service, he's seen the wealth building power of real estate investing firsthand. His current portfolio is greater than a thousand doors. Learn from his experience and insights into tracking KPIs to optimize returns. I'm Darren Batchelder, ex-corporate guy turned business owner and real estate investor. It wasn't long ago that I was searching for a new way to provide for my family. Dreaming of finding a way to achieve both financial freedom and freedom of my time. Fast forward through many learning lessons and you'll see the business and the real estate portfolio I have today which changes lives and gives me so much more freedom. The freedom that I thought only existed as a dream. My wife and I have invested in over 9,000 multifamily units and it all started with a duplex. If you are a C-level executive or other high net worth individual with at least $50,000 to invest and you're looking for alternative assets to help preserve your family's capital, build your wealth, and save on your taxes, then you've come to the right place. I developed a way to invite others to invest in our deals, not available anywhere else, and do the same thing I've done. To get started, book your discovery call today at calendly.com forward slash dbatchelder. Welcome to Darren Batchelder's Real Estate Investing Show. Each week, you will learn how to grow your wealth through real estate investing, be introduced to the players that are getting it done, and learn how you can get involved. And now, here's your host, Darren Batchelder. A little background on Greg Butcher before we start the show. Greg spent 18 plus years in active duty. He learned the power of real estate investing while in the service and has scaled up into larger multifamily properties. He now not only built a sizable portfolio for he and his family, but he also coaches others how to do the same. Now, onto the show. Hello, everyone. Today, we have a very special guest. We've got Greg Butcher. Greg, appreciate you coming on the show. Thanks a lot, Darren. Great to be here. Absolutely. So a little bit on how we know each other. Um, Greg and I both are uh, part of the same or started out as part of the same multifamily mentorship group. Um, Greg lives in California. I'm in Dallas, um, but we met through this this similar group, and he's been off to the races doing great things, and I'm looking forward to hearing what he's been up to. So with that, um, Greg, can you share with the listeners how many properties and how many units you're invested in? Sure, absolutely. So um, right now I have seven active properties as a GP with a little over a 1,000 doors, um, and one more property I've invested in uh, strictly passively, uh, about roughly 150 doors. Um, before this, I've had an, an additional GP property that's gone full cycle, uh, it's 120 doors and three other LP uh, investments that also went full cycle, uh, total of about 450 doors or something like that. Well, that's awesome. It's, it's great that you got the experience of both full cycle and um, existing deals. So, um, you know, before we get going, one, I want to thank you for your service because I know you were in service. So maybe you can share a little bit about your background um, before getting into real estate investing. Sure, absolutely. Um, so, yeah, I grew up in Oklahoma and uh, went to the University of Oklahoma. Um, boomer sooner. <laughs> I have to say that, especially because I know there's a lot of Texas listeners here, too. <laughs> no, it's a, good a little rivalry. bit of rivalry. It's a good rivalry. It's all good fun. They're both great, great, great schools. Um, so uh, I, I went through ROTC while I was in college and got my commission in the Marine Corps uh, when I graduated and, uh, and was on active duty for about 18 and a half years before I took a slightly early retirement um, in 2015. So um, yeah, I was a combat engineer officer, lived, uh, served all over the world, uh, both coasts, California, North Carolina, Virginia. I was in Germany twice. Um, I spent a year in Pakistan as well as deployments in uh, Afghanistan, Iraq, and, and uh, around the Mediterranean and places like that. Wow. 
Uh, I'd have to answer that by saying we have a bias for taking action. We get things done. We're not going to just sit around and make excuses and actually not not produce any kind of results. We're going to we're going to make stuff happen. So I'd say that's the absolute biggest thing. Definitely commented on there. That's the, I think that's huge. Um, you know, when you think about, and we'll get into how you got into real estate investing, but that definitely parlays into you know getting into real estate investing because there's fear of pulling the trigger. And, and so taking action and doing things that you haven't done before is, is something that you got to be able to do. And so that's, that's interesting. Absolutely. So um, now you, you, did you start investing in real estate while you were still in the service or did you? I did actually. Okay. Yeah. So I started around 2005, 2006 timeframe. Um, so when I, uh, in 2002, I got orders to Bakersfield, California, which is the first time I ever lived in California and people went Bakersfield, what? Uh, but I was there running a reserve unit for three years. And, um, that was the first time I ever bought a house for myself. So a few months, uh, before that, about, about nine months before that, I had just gotten back from a six month deployment, uh, at sea, uh, on a Navy ship in the Mediterranean. And so I saved up some money while I was on that, on that deployment. Um, so when I got to Bakersfield, I had a whopping $4,000 in the bank. Nice. Yeah. I never <laughs> had that much money in the bank out before. <laughs> right. So I was like, well, I'm, I feel like I'm kind of throwing my money away in rent. And, you know, if I could be building something for myself. And, and right then at the time, you know, prices of real estate just kept on going up. So uh, I felt, well, maybe I can buy something. And thanks to the VA home loan and, and that $4,000 I saved up, I was able to, you know, VA home loan will finance a hundred percent. So hundred um, percent. It will. It absolutely, absolutely will. So, um, uh, up to appraised value. So it appraised, I bought a house for, I think it was $92,000, uh, in 2002 while I was at, during that tour, someone gave me the book, rich dad, poor dad, which opened my eyes. Um, you know, I certainly was not raised thinking about entrepreneur, entrepreneurism. Um, I, uh, had the, the 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 usual guidance from my parents to go to college and get, so I could get a good job. You know, I took a slightly different route going to go the Marine Corps. Um, but you know, rich dad poor dad really opened my eyes and made me start thinking about other possibilities. Uh, and it gave me this idea that when I uh, get had uh, permanent change of station orders um, to move somewhere else, then I would start buying a house to live in and then turn it into a rental when I had to move again and buy another house and just keep on accumulating houses that way. Um, and so I started doing that, but I needed some seed money to start off because that $4,000 wasn't going to cut it. <laughs> so uh, I, in 2005, when I left there, I sold that Bakersfield house. Um, and, you know, if you remember what the price of, of real estate was doing back in those years, especially in California, um, I did pretty well. So uh, I sold that $92,000 house for $229,000. Holy um, cow. Are you kidding me? I'm not kidding. And, uh, and I, then I was like, man, I love real estate. I can learn more about this. This is I need more some of this. <laughs> so let me stop you there. I mean, that that's crazy for a serviceman. Like, you can't save that much money. I mean, two twenty nine. dollars you know, that's what? $137,000, you know, like, how are you going to save that much money? You know, so that's something that you're doing. You, you owned an asset and then all of a sudden it appreciated. Yeah. That was more than a year's worth of my salary at the time. So that's, that's massive. Yeah. All right. So you go, you sell that house. Now you've got this a lot more than 4,000 yeah. and you go, <laughs> you go to your next station. So what happens then? Yeah, so I went to um, Quantico, Virginia for school for a year and uh, bought a house in Fredericksburg, Virginia uh, that I lived in there. And then I got orders after that school back down to Camp Lejeune, North Carolina um, and bought a house there and started renting out the one in, in Virginia. Um, and so I had these two houses. I From there, I was deployed for a year to Pakistan, came back. Um, and after two years there, I got orders to Germany in 2008. So I moved to Germany and I rented out that house uh, there in North Carolina. So I had these two these two houses and I figured that while I was in Europe, I was going to have to put, uh, you know, new acquisitions on hold because um, I didn't see how I could possibly do it while I was in, in Europe uh, and have to travel down to Africa a lot while I was there and stuff. 
Um, so, and plus I just wanted to spend my spare time like traveling and seeing everything I could in Europe. Right. So, um, but you know, I moved there again, 2008. So, um, I seem to remember something significant happened in the financial market around 2008. Yes. Um, so suddenly I learned there's this thing called a real estate cycle and I bought two houses at the peak and they were both upside down. Oh no. So, yeah. But that was also where I learned my first big lesson about, you know, what had to do with real estate during a recession, uh, during negative economic times. And as long as you, as long as you don't have to sell, just don't sell. If you sell, you lo you've lost money. That's when you lock in a loss. Um, but if you can cash flow and there's nothing in your loan that forces you to sell, just hold on to it and wait. So let me ask you, were, were both homes cash flowing? Was the rent covering all, all the costs or were, were you out of pocket? I was, uh, one of them was cash flowing a tiny bit and the other one was slightly negative, but it, was, it wasn't a big deal. So uh, it was basically a wash and I still got tax benefits at the end of the day for depreciation. So um, it, 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 they weren't great purchases. I call them my, my learning properties, right. uh, <laughs> but, but, um, they, they were close enough to being, you know, uh, being zero cash flow kind of thing where I just, I, I had them at that point, nothing else I could do. So I held on to them. So of those three, which is, which house would purchase was the scariest? Um, probably the, the one in Virginia, uh, because, wow. It, well, it was the highest price, um, 286000 which, you know, for a, a 29, 30-year-old captain of the Marines was a little bit scary. Um, and I didn't want to put all of that nest egg that I got from selling my Bakersfield house down. So I did an 80% uh, LTV loan and, um, and then a 10% uh, second loan. Uh, so uh, it was 90% total, total leverage there. Um, so when it went underwater, it went underwater. And right. so I, and, and I, I say it was negative cash or is like rel rel relatively neutral cash flow. But honestly, I just continued paying down that second mortgage until that was paid off uh, as quickly as I could. So I was sinking more money into it. So, so I, I'm not familiar with VA loans. Uh, were now, were you able to use a VA loan on, you didn't, you did an 80-10-10, but were, would you have been able to do a 100% loan on that Virginia property too, or no? Is you it know, it's so long ago, I don't remember exactly why I didn't, but I think it was because I, was, I knew I was only there for a year. And, and I think it was about the length of time I would have had to have lived in it to have, um, to have qualified for that. So. so the VA loan has a requirement that you have to live in it for a period of time as well? I, I'm no expert on the VA homeowner right now. I know some people that are, but I'm not positive. Okay. And, and, and the, the rules have changed in the last you know, 15, 20 years also. So. Gotcha. Well, I, I bring it up because I don't, I don't know, but I would say, man, like anybody that's in the service in any capacity, if you can get a hundred percent loan, focus on cash flow. If the deal cash flows, like Greg said, it doesn't matter if all of a sudden you bought it at the wrong time, you, you know, you just hold on to it and it, it cash flows. So all the rent money is covering all of your expenses and you just hold on. And, and exactly. And at the same time, you're paying down your mortgage balance too. So you're, right. you're, you're building equity. equity. Exactly. Awesome. All right. So that's single family. You, you get into that in single family and, and you're doing that for what, 10 years? From 2005 yeah, through through 2015, when you came out of the service. Yeah, I held on to those properties until um, 2020 and 2022 is when I sold the Virginia property. So just just about six or eight months ago, um, I finally finally sold both of them and made a profit on both of them. So I just held on to them until it made sense to sell, um, and and it finally did. So. Uh, so when I came back from Germany in uh, 2010, I was in California then, uh, first time in the San Diego area, and um, I started trying to figure out how to get back into real estate. It took me a little bit of time, but but uh, I wanted to get back into it, um, and I was trying to figure out how to make it scalable, and I just couldn't figure it out, uh, especially with California prices, which you know were, were a lot smaller back then, but they were still a lot to me at the time. So, uh, 
I we went to, I remember I, I went to, uh, after I went to Afghanistan and came back, I went to uh, an REI expo in Anaheim. And in the meantime, I tried a, a long distance flip with some people who claimed to know uh, the market in Indianapolis. Uh, apparently they didn't know it quite as well as they said they did because uh, it was the wrong side of the street and we ended up losing about 10 grand on it. Um, so I was at this REI expo and that's when I met Brad Sumrock um, in November of 2013. And it was his, his first year having his own program. And he talked for 45 minutes about multifamily and syndications. And it was like the, you know, the clouds parted, the, 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 the light shone down from the heavens. And, and I, I knew this was the way. <laughs> so why, why, why did you think it was the way? Uh, because it was scalable. It, it was so much more infinitely scalable than what any way I had found to do single family homes. Um, and I, I, I saw the, the, the profit potential on it, especially as a, a, both on the passive investor and on the, the active investor, the sponsor side of things, uh, but particularly, of course, on the sponsor side of things. Um, and that was the direction I wanted to go. So, so would you have felt been looking for the opportunity to scale if you hadn't bought that first house in California? Oh, gosh, that's a heck of a question. I would like to think I would have found real estate at some point, but that, that was definitely a springboard for me just due to how profitable it was. I think, you know, that I've talked to and interviewed so many different people. And I mean, typically what I see is, and it's not for everybody, but most people it's, they start out that first deal is, is one of the scariest deals that they've, they do, whether it's a single family house or a duplex or, they go right into multifamily. Um, But it's because they're doing something they haven't done before. And then they don't even, most people say that they, and I'm, I'm included in this. I bought a duplex to start out with and I couldn't even see the next step until I did that first step. And once I did the first step, then I went looking for something bigger. I went, you know, and, and in your story, it's, it's similar. You, you bought the single family. You had really, you had fantastic success on that first one. Yeah. Um, you had some challenges on the second two, but, but you went looking for something that was scalable and, and you, you ended up finding that. But had you not done those first deals, those first single families, you probably wouldn't be looking for that scalable, you know, deal. And, and that's, what I tell people is that, you know, in the beginning, it's all about you and how to build your wealth and how to try to grow and then then how to scale, which we, talk, we just talked about. And then the third piece, which you're heavily involved in now, which I want to get to also, is then turning around and helping other people do it. Yeah, yeah. You know, Darren, I, I think part of it too was I didn't realize it when I got into my military career, but I was in a career with a very short uh, shelf life. Um, and I never thought about that when I was, you know, 22 or anything like that. Um, it's very unusual to, to stay in the military past 20 years. Uh, it's, it's certainly possible, but it, it, it wears on you too in, in a lot of different ways. The, the constant orders, you know, I have to, you know, the deployments, um, it, it all adds up. And there were some family reasons why. Uh, I chose to get out when I did, um, and I I loved what I did in the Marine Corps. It was truly my calling, um, but it was also a hell of a lot of work. And so, part of why I wanted to be, to find scale in real estate was so that I could do that full time after I retired from active duty. Real estate, do real estate full time after I after I retired from active duty. But I needed to scale up the income I could get from that enough to make that worthwhile. So that's why I was trying to find scale. You know, that's, that's truly the reason. So you were looking to replace what you were, you were earning in the, you know, as a military officer. Um, or at least a portion of it, because I, after I retired, I, I, I started drawing the retirement benefits immediately. So I didn't have to make up uh, the entire salary, but right. a good chunk of it. Absolutely. All right. So talk about, you know, there's, Everybody comes to real estate at a different level, different age, different financial, you know, balance sheet. So talk about, you know, how do people 
navigate that. Like a young guy that comes in may not have much money, but they got the hustle factor, you know? And then somebody that is, you know, more senior, they may have money, but they're like, they're not wanting to hustle as much. Exactly. So how, how do these people all get involved? And I know that you're involved with coaching now, so maybe share a little bit about, you know, what you're doing there. And then, you know, you know, I get questions like, and I'm sure you get the same, like, what value do I have to offer? Yes. Yes. To talk about that. Sure. Absolutely. So, um, it's the biggest thing. The biggest advice is network, 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 meet as many people as you can find out what they need, find ways to help them get what they need. Um, and, and be honest about what your, what your assets and strengths are too. Um, the hard part, like you're, like, I think you're kind of hinting on here is, is, uh, you know, identifying what those are in the first place. So, uh, on the multifamily side, you know, there's so many different pieces that you need to find a property to build a general partnership team. Um, you need, it, it definitely helps to have boots on the ground. It's not hundred percent necessary, but it definitely helps to have boots on the ground. Um, someone who can get there easily, you know, during the, the ownership period, but also just for property tours, meeting with a broker and, and all that kind of stuff during the acquisition phase. Um, you need to have people who have the, the net worth and liquidity uh, for the loan, but it doesn't have to be you. There's, there's other things you can do if you, if you don't have that. Um, there needs to be someone who uh, understands uh, construction and construction management and uh, working with contractors and, and comparing bids uh, and scopes of work uh, to, to manage that piece of things. There needs to be someone who is familiar with, with financials and financial management um, so they can understand the, the financial aspect of things. And also, and, and it might be the same person or it might be another, a different person uh, to be the tax matters uh, professional working with the, the, the CPA for tax returns and K-1s um, and things like that. And you need to have someone who is um, the asset manager, at least one person who's the asset manager, uh, working with a property management company, assuming you're talking about a party or a property that's big enough for third-party property management um, to make the asset perform because that's one of the, the most important things today. So and it, see, it sounds like I just named about eight different people, but, you know, usually it's a combination of a smaller, a smaller group of people. Oh, and oh, by the way, the big thing I forgot, which is more important now than it was when I started in 2015, um, is raising equity, being able to raise capital uh, to buy the property in the first place. Yeah, that, I mean, you hit on all the major um, aspects of the deal. And to your point, you could end up partnering with two or three people and you know, one person takes two or three of those roles um, under, under their belt. Um, but I think what, you know, when you talk about network, 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 what I found, which, which is unique, I think, in, in the real estate world versus other industries that I've been a part of, is that in that networking, people get to the heart of the discussion pretty darn quick. And so you need to really think about, you know, tell people what you're looking for. You know, what are you looking for in a partner and what value can you bring, you know, and just be authentic and real about it. And, you know, depending if you're bringing, if it's your first deal and you're bringing, you know, maybe you, you need a lot of the pieces of the puzzle filled in, well, maybe you get a smaller piece of the deal, you know. Um, from a GP perspective, but you get the experience of working with all these other parties. Um, but, you know, I had somebody on my, on my show that said that he was meeting with a bank president and he told them, hey, I'm looking for a property this size. Da, 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 da. The next week, a broker that he, this guy had never talked to called him and said, hey, I've got this property. And he ended up buying it. Well, if he had never told the bank president, what he was looking for, that conversation never would have taken place. You have to be willing to tell people, and you are going to get no's, right? I mean, it's not, it's not personal. Like you say, you're looking to, for this type of person, they're like, oh, I already got that covered. 
And they're like, it's like speed dating. And then all of a sudden you're on to the next person. Um, just let it roll off your back. I mean, you're trying to figure out something that works for both parties. Absolutely. Absolutely. This guy, it reminds me of a story from my military uh, career, actually. It's when I was applying for the early retirement program. And it, this message just came out saying that my specialty was no longer going to be eligible for it after December 31st. And, and this was like December 15th. So I called up my or emailed my my monitor, the guy that kind of controls our career and sends us orders and said, hey, what's the deal? Is this, if I, if I apply for this now, is this going to be, is this, it says December 31st, but is this really like, I don't want to be blackballed if I, if I is known as the guy who applied for it, didn't get it. And I'm still serving for a couple more years. And he said, Hey, don't ask the question. The answer is going to be no. <laughs> Absolutely. If you don't ask, you, the answer is going to be no. Exactly. So in this way, instead of asking, I'd say, like you said, if you don't put yourself out there, you're never going to have the op those opportunities pop up and they don't pop up all the time, but you're, you're limiting yourself for that pot, the possibility of it happening. If you don't put yourself out there. So you absolutely have to do that. What do you mean by put yourself out there? Well, like you just said, uh, when, when you're networking, do you tell people what it is that you're looking for and what you can do to help out a team. Um, and, and, you know, you just gave the example there of that, uh, that banker who connected someone with a broker who had a deal for them that fit their deal profile. Uh, and that never would have would have happened if he hadn't you know, communicated openly with that, that banker about what he's looking for. Uh, absolutely. Um, another story, I, I ended up going to a conference and I was a speaker at a conference and all of a sudden I bumped into somebody I knew and they were like, hey, Darren, you know, I've got this deal. Do you want to partner on it? Had I not gone to that conference... I just were out of sight, out of mind. I mean, it's not like anything personal, but he wouldn't have thought of to call me, right? Absolutely. And so then we ended up doing a deal together. And so, but things also like build off of each other, just like you bought the single family house and then you figured out, okay, well, I'm going to do another one. And then how do I scale? And you got into multifamily. Um, even as simple as going to your first networking meeting, that can be scary. You don't know anybody. What are you going to say? Are you going to feel dumb? You know, you know what? You just got to get over it. You got to go, you know, and maybe the first time you go and you just listen. And then the second time you start telling people what you need, you know, you're what you're looking for or what, you know, questions that you have. Um, but you, ha you got to do it. I mean, you really have to do it. Yeah. Growth begins outside our comfort zone. You have to get comfortable making yourself uncomfortable. And just go do the thing that you're 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 scared to do or or uncomfortable uh, doing. And uh, on the other side of that, you'll you'll realize that there's nothing to be scared about in the first place at all. That is so true, right? We have that fear in our head. Yeah. But when you get to these events, my experience is that you know the other people they're they want to meet people also, and they want to learn. You know, it's about learning and it's about meeting other people and seeing if you can help each other. Um, and people that, this is also my experience, is people that are successful want to help the next guy. Exactly. Before we hit record, you said it's just the way you are. Like you're, now you're coaching, right? You're helping yeah. other people. So talk about the group that you're part of and what you're doing because I think that's huge is, is, letting other people know that they can do it. Yeah, absolutely. So, um, you know, I always, you know, answer questions and try to help out newer investors and everything. Uh, but my friends, uh, you know, they have an educational program of their own now, uh, Vertical Street Ventures Academy. Um, and so they asked me to come on as a coach for them. And, you know, it's not a whole lot of time. It was actually right as I had left my uh, W2 job for good, and was doing this and started to do this full time. So I said, yeah, I can afford, you know, 10 hour, 10, 12 hours a month um, to, to do this. And that way I can help out uh, people who are, are getting started like I was back in the day too. So um, I've been doing that for about a year now and it's, it's a fantastic program and there's fantastic people in the program um, and just really, really thoroughly enjoy helping people get their start. That's huge. Um, so what about belief? Like you said, you said people from, you know, the military are, 
have a bias for taking action, right? I, I believe also, like, the person needs to believe that they can achieve what they're going after. I couldn't agree more. I couldn't agree more. You know, when I got started, I, I went from uh, my last transaction, real estate transaction being a single family house, um, to investing passively in apartments, to my first general partner transaction being 120 units. And if you told me that <laughs> two or three years before, right. I would have said, you're out of your mind. Right. And it was, it was just the understanding the mindset that, hey, you don't need to start small. You don't have to start small. In fact, the smaller properties are often some of the most problematic ones. Um, and it is all about belief. So it, uh, having the, the belief, I think, uh, in these kind of in these educational programs um, is, a, is just as important as the, the technical aspects of real estate transactions. Yeah, because, you know, it, I don't know what it is, but you, you also have like a sixth sense, like people have a sixth sense of, you know, does this guy think he can do it? You know, like, are, are you yeah. confident in yourself? You know, that's a big piece of it. Now, if you're a listener and you don't have confidence in yourself, it's not like it's not, it can't be learned, okay? Um, you know, part of that is getting around other people that have done it. And I know that when I surrounded myself with other people, I was like, these are smart people, right? But they're smart, but like, if they can do it, I can do it, you know? Absolutely. This isn't rocket science. It's not no. rocket science. No, no. And the funny part is you said sometimes the, the larger deals are easier. I had a syndicator on who's done, I'm, I don't know, probably three, four, five thousand 5,000 units. And um, it was a female. And she said, you know what, Darren, I was trying to refinance my, my house. And it, it was a lot harder than obtaining financing on a 250 unit multifamily complex. Like that's crazy to think about, right? That is crazy, <laughs> but, I, but I can totally see it happening too. <laughs> yeah, you know, so, so people think the opposite though, until they're in the world, they're like 250 units or 100 units, like, oh my gosh, I can't get my head around that. Yeah. And, but that's where, you know what? You align yourself with people that have already done that and they help coach you along. They, you know, they're part of your team. Exactly. And that's why you go to those networking events. You go to the conferences. You join a mentoring program. Uh, all, those, all those things help you with that belief. And, and being around people who are already doing what it is that you're doing um, shows you that you can do it too. Yeah, yeah. I, so some, there's some people out there like, oh, these you know, mentorship programs, these educational programs, these seminars are, they just want my money. And I look at it like it's a give and take. Like, yeah, whoever's putting it on is making money. It's a business venture, but they're sharing their knowledge and it's up to you to grab that knowledge and then apply it and take action. If you go there and you just listen and you do nothing, yeah, they made money off you and, you know, you're out of money and you have the knowledge, but you're not doing anything with it to make it profitable. You have to take action on that, you know, but what I've seen is it could shrink the time frame of success dramatically. So I couldn't you, agree more. You know, you go and you find other people that have done what you want to do and, you know, you, you learn from them and, and, you know, what may have taken you three or four or five years, maybe you could do in a year. Yeah, it, it, knowledge without action is worthless, um, and action without knowledge is reckless. So that, that's a great way to put it. That's a great, great way to put it. Hey, so I know that you are also focused on on uh, asset management. So you know, asset management comes in. You know, there's so much talk about how do you buy a deal and how do you you know close a deal and how do you raise money for a deal and and all of that. But then once you close, like now you've got a property and you have to actually manage it. So, you know, talk to us about that. Yeah, sure. Absolutely. Um, and that's, that's super important right now. Cause you know, when I, when I got started in, in 2015, got my first GP, GP property in 2016, uh, we were still in a cap rate compression environment. So prices were going up and that glosses over mistakes. <laughs> <laughs> 
you know, you never know whether the, the the equity growth is due to good asset management or just due to you know the trend rising. Um, and I look back on my first property that I was a GP on, and I kind of have to laugh at, at the things that I didn't know in the team. The, the, we didn't know at the time to, to even be tracking. Um, so, uh, yeah, but right now, uh, things are kind of the opposite. You know, the prices are going the other direction right now. Um, and the two biggest things that can make a difference between whether a property succeeds or fails is the debt that you place on the property and the asset management. So it, asset management is exceedingly important right now. That can really uh, make a business plan uh, succeed or fail right now. So I think that you had um, some way of kind of looking at asset management. I, I do. I have just kind of a little set of principles. It's a little mnemonic. Um, I call it the M3, C3 asset management principles. N as in Nancy? Uh, no, M as in Mike. M as in Mike, okay. M3. Yeah. M3, C3. Okay, all right. So that stands for manager, meetings, measure, cash, construction, and community. So the first M is manager, and the whole point of that is that your property manager is your most important partner in the business. People will also say that your, your lender is your most important property uh, partner. Uh, and that's, that's well and true too, because they provide so, the majority of the money for the deal. However, they don't get involved in asset management. So as far as on the asset management side, your property manager is your most important partner. Let me ask you on that piece to differentiate between the on-site leasing manager and say the regional. Yeah, so I'm talking about the, the whole company as a whole is your most important partner. And both both the on-site and the regional are, are key parts of that. Um, so, you know, part of it is don't give conflicting guidance. So you wouldn't you want to give your site manager uh, instructions or guidance that you're not also letting your regional know about. Okay, because they have their own chain of command within their within their, within their company too. The, the whole company is your partner. From, from the regional to the site manager to the maintenance guy, also perhaps construction management staff. You know some of the, some of the other departments, their accounting department. Um, so they're, you're partnered with the whole company. Um, part of what that goes along with that is uh, to trust but verify. You know, inspect what you expect, um, and uh, and you know di different things about evaluating a, a property management company. Um, and have backups ready too, because sometimes you do have to change property management company. I had to do that once last year. Um, it takes time uh, it, to, to make it happen. Um, and you need to, if, if you realize that you need to change, is, that isn't the time to go ahead and start just be looking for, uh, for a new property management company. Um, you need to have a short list ready uh, in any market that you have properties in. So... Yeah. So I, I mean, I agree with that. I've had some properties where the regional is really strong and they're like the, the person I communicate with the most. And I've had properties where the regional wasn't that strong, but the onsite person was fantastic. And, you know, um, so, and I know maybe I'm not the big, they're not the biggest fan of me at times because I'm going to go to the person that's going to get the job done, right? And so the regional always wants you to go through the regional. Um, but, you know, sometimes you can change out property management companies, and sometimes you can just ask for a change of staff. So yeah. the property management company may be a good company, but maybe they have the wrong regional for you, or maybe they have the wrong on-site manager for, for you and your property. And so that is also an option and a decision point that you can make as the general partnership team is, hey, we're going to keep the property management company, but we need to swap somebody out. That, that's very true. It is so much personality dependent. Um, you know, the company, it matters. The overhead support that they, they can provide matters, absolutely. But the majority of it depends on who that regional and that site manager are and, and, and their competence um, and willingness to, to work with owners. Yeah, I mean, it could be something like, 
as simple as the on-site manager, they brought on a new person. They think they're a good person, but they're, you know, they have the experience of A properties and this is a C property, you know? Exactly. And and maybe it's in a Spanish-speaking area and this person doesn't speak Spanish. Well, you know, they're trying to train up that person, but, you know, you're responsible for the asset management on your deal. And so you need to make sure that you have the right people in place. Correct, correct. Absolutely agree. All right, so I stopped you on the first of the of the yeah. M three. So, so, so manager, then meetings. Meetings. So that's hold organized meetings. Um, don't a meeting shouldn't be an hour, hour and a half long, where you're looking through uh, the reports for the first time. They should send you, be sending you your weekly reports before the meeting and look over them before the meeting and identify the the, the few hot topics that needs to be discussed during the meeting. Um, so respecting everyone's time, uh, because, you know, going back to the management company, uh, that, that regional manager probably has seven or eight properties that they, uh, oversee and they're having this similar meetings for, for these other properties also. So you need to respect everyone's time. Okay. Um, and at the same time, if you, depending on the size of a team, you might have, you know, back in the day when pro- when prices were lower and loan to value was higher. Uh, we didn't have to raise as much equity, so we might have two or three uh, GPs. And now these days, you might see some some properties where we have like eight or nine GPs. Give the property management company one to two at most like points of contact to work with, and let funnel the GP team should be funneling everything through those one or two points of contact for asset management. And that it, it shouldn't be something where there's a Zoom meeting and eight or nine people are on there representing the, the managers and you know, giving their own opinions and, and everything back and forth. Okay. You gotta, you know, focus, uh, focus the team. That that's important. The other thing I would say is, and you, and you hit on it is look, there's a lot of different things that you can bring up in that meeting. There, look, when you go on a, you know, visit your property, there's a lot of things that you can, you know, point out that are issues. And if you, know, these people are, they're trying to help you succeed, the property management company. If you give them a laundry list of 15 things and, you know, 12 of them are low value and top three are stuff you really want them to focus on, just focus on those three. Like, yeah. let the others slide for a while, you know? And then, you know, when when the time comes, when those three hot topics are addressed, then get to the next stuff. But, you know, you want to focus on giving directive and focus to the property management company, in, you know, without having this long, 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 long laundry list. Exactly. I couldn't agree more. And, and you mentioned about, you know, taking notes from a, a site inspection or a physical meeting. And, you know, part of this is also, um, taking organized notes from the meetings, whether they're online uh, meetings or, or phone calls or they're on site, have, take organized notes that assign responsibility to any action items to certain individuals, you know, let, make it clear who is expected to follow up on what. So there's no ambiguity there. And then just hold people accountable. Be supportive, but, but hold accountable at the same time. So That's, that's great. What's the third M? Uh, the third uh, M is measure, and that is to measure what you want to manage. And that's about looking at the right key performance indicators, KPIs, uh, for your business, um, for well, for your property. Uh, your business might have KPIs also, but as far as looking at a particular property, um, there are a number of different KPIs you should be looking at um, throughout. Such as, what are the top KPIs? So uh, there's a bunch of KPIs that I look at in a few different categories. And the categories that I, I look at uh, are roughly um, in about current occupancy, uh, resident activity, and leasing status. Okay, that's about you know, what fit current physical occupancy is, uh, the number of move-ins, move-outs, new leases signed, no- notice given, uh, skips, evictions in process, all that. Uh, and what the current leased occupancy is, uh, pre-leased occupancy. And then uh, your financial collections, delinquency, and evictions. Um, And then leasing traffic, leasing and marketing. Then leasing or renewal offers and lease trade-out growth. uh, Work orders, and then unit turns and renovations. So I actually have a 
uh, a checklist that I've developed uh, that I'll make available to your audience here at the end of the, the podcast, um, where, you know, as I was learning about asset management, I, I saw a number of different KPIs, but I was never sure what to look at on a weekly, monthly, quarterly basis, et cetera. Um, and so I ended up building that myself. So this KPI checklist I have is a recommendation of what to look at uh, weekly, monthly, quarterly, and annually. Um, now that's not hard and fast rules. Every, every uh, property has its own KPIs that you might want to focus on. You know, you might not be looking at absolutely everything that's in this checklist. So you kind of have to decide what's important based on the particular property and the property's business plan. But it's nice to have a, a resource. Like, I, want, I want to see the KPI checklist. So um, you can look through, and am I missing something? You know, where do I want to focus? And so that, that's important. Exactly. You know, everyone looks at the, the first one I mentioned, occupancy, resident activity, um, and leasing status. That's, that's kind of a no-brainer. Um, that first property I mentioned that where I laughed because we weren't doing things quite right back then. Yeah. Um, I mean, we were doing looking at that, of course, everyone looks at that. But how many people are looking at their leasing traffic um, and, and marketing, uh, what their marketing spend is? Um, what lead, what lead sources are uh, are providing the most um, the most uh, bang for their buck, you know, the, the most leads right now, um, and and so how, and breaking it down into the cost per lead, the cost per lease signed, what they're actually paying, are you are, is, are you spending your money effectively? Yeah, um, I mean, like where are the people coming from, and you know who of those groups are actually signing leases. Like exactly. We, we want to spend our money where, where we're successful, right? And so maybe you, you readjust your marketing budget to do more of that because that's providing results. Exactly. That makes sense. And looking at your, your leasing prices, your renewal prices, you know, we don't ever want our, our site managers to be sending out renewal offers without us having reviewed what the renewal offer is going to be first and the reasons why. Um, you know, are we going straight to market? Or are we discounting a little bit from market? You know, what? How much of a of an increase is this for for that resident? Is this resident someone we want to keep, or someone we don't mind mind losing? Um, and then looking at your associated lease trade off growth, uh, that was something we never looked at on that first property I talked about. But right now, we're in um, some of the markets I'm in, I'm in uh, Phoenix, Tucson, Denver. Um, you know, there the the rent, organic rent growth has slowed way down or stopped, but we're still getting really strong lease trade out growth and, and renewal growth. You know, and it up is up to even eighteen percent on our uh, wow. on our Denver property. Yeah, yeah. So uh, you know, when you hear the doom and gloom about what's going on with with um, rent growth slowing down stuff like that, there still can be a lot of room. Uh, to for for growth in terms of burning off loss to lease, so so you know if you if you're new like to the area you know to this industry what you know what Greg's talking about is okay well maybe the market rent for you know two bedroom is fifteen hundred, but there's somebody that has a current lease of eleven fifty, and so there's three hundred and fifty dollars difference that's the loss to lease between what your current lease is and what your, you know, the market is, well, maybe they, you know, on the renewal, bring them up to 1350. Well, 200, you know, on, on 1150 is still a really good increase in rent, you know? So maybe that, that top line market rent isn't growing, but there's still a lot of room elsewhere. Exactly. Exactly. So talk about hard versus easy. Like, and that I know is simplification, but as a passive investor, is it easy or hard to get involved? As an active investor, is it easy or hard to get a deal and, and do a deal? Like, Well, as a passive investor, I'd say it's, it's certainly a lot easier to get involved and do a deal. Um, it's really just a matter of networking with and finding uh, the 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 active investors, the GPs and sponsors um, that you know and getting on their lists and then figuring out uh, if those are people that you are confident investing with them, looking at their track record, 
um, looking at what they, you know, who they're partnered with, looking at their processes, looking at their investor communications. That's a, that's a big one for me personally. You know, when I was uh, first starting off, I invested passively in some deals where the sponsors um, were poor at communicating. They, they gave weekly, or I'm sorry, monthly reports, um, but it was nothing more than a sentence or two and, you know, income, expenses, NOI, and that was it. Along, along with the financials. So there was no story along with it. So we always try to over-communicate vice, under-communicate, because someone can always ignore it if it's more than they want to look at, but they can't pull information out that we don't provide them. So, right. so let's hard. stay on the, on the, on the LP okay. side. So on the LP side, um, a few things. One, you, know, you, you had three deals LP go full cycle. Were the returns... Uh, two of them, no. One of them, yes. So one of them was a mistake uh, I wish I hadn't gotten into. And the reason why is because of size. It was too small to have been a syndication. It was 18 units. Um, it was in the Dallas-Fort Worth area. Uh, and, you know, this goes back to how, you know, larger deals can be easier than small deals. Um, the quality of property management you get for a 100-unit deal is better than the property management you can get for an 18 unit deal. Um, the contractor you have come in doing your unit renovations and stuff, uh, you might, in this case, was, was not what we expected, was not what the sponsors expected. So at the end of the day, uh, and also, so the smaller number of units, you're concentrating your risk. Okay, so, you know, one unit goes vacant and, you know, you're all already, uh, it's a big hit on your occupancy. And in this case, we had a unit where the uh, tenant declared bankruptcy, which is easy to ev evict in Texas if you have to for non-payment. But when they declare bankruptcy in the, in the unit, then that's a whole different uh, set of rules. So they ended up living there for about six months rent-free oh, no. uh, before we could get them out. Uh, and then there was another unit that went um, that became uninhabitable due to uh, black mold that formed from a, a leak under the slab. So all of a sudden we had two to three units that were down, you know, it was down or, or had this uh, this uh, bankruptcy. Uh, and that was a huge hit to our, our total income. Yeah, three units on 18 versus three units on 120 is, makes a big difference. Exactly, exactly. So... You know, at the end of the day, we still didn't didn't lose money in the deal. We made money, but just didn't make a lot of money. We made uh, they held on to it for about two years, and then they sold it at the first opportunity they had that made sense because uh, they realized, hey, let's just if we can give everyone their money back, we'll with a little bit of return, everyone will be happy. Right. Um, and so I think we made like fifteen percent return on that. So with no no distributions ever. Um, the deal I did before that uh, was uh, like a 150-ish unit deal uh, in the Oklahoma City area. And um, I think the sponsor just didn't know that neighborhood quite as well. Um, it was probably a little bit more challenging neighborhood. Uh, and so they, it still it wasn't bad, but uh, they didn't meet the five-year projection of like 102, 103% total return. It was like 60-ish percent total return. Hey, that's a lot better than I can do the stock market. <laughs> right. Exactly. And, then, and you're saying that those are the ones that didn't achieve what you, you had expected. Yeah. Yeah. So the one that did, um, it, it held on to it for six years. Oh, uh, that was a it, long one. It was a long one. Um, they took out a supplemental loan after about two years and uh, paid everyone back the majority of their original investment. Um, so I think it was like, I don't know, like, 75% or so of, the, of, of our original investment we got paid back. And then we still held on to it for about four more years after that. Um, thing, they, there, it, was, it was making distributions most of the time. There was, it became cash flow challenged uh, later on in the ownership period. Uh, that's when we were like, hey, let's just sell this darn thing. Uh, but it, we were still benefiting from the equity growth. And so it sold uh, finally right at the beginning of 2022. Um, Thank goodness it did then before prices started being adjusted for the interest rate right. hikes. Right. Um, and so all told, I think we like two and a half extra money. So nice. I'll definitely take that. So a few things on that, like, you know, stay on the passive side is that one, even though you had two deals that didn't meet expectations, you still made money. 
you still, so capital preservation still occurred. You know, you put your money in those deals. There were um, challenges. It, it ends up being the same thing that you talked about earlier with the single family. Like, look, with real estate, you, you don't have a loss until you sell. Like, so if you don't have to sell, just hold on and wait for a better time. Yes, sir. And, and so, you know, in terms of a passive, um, you know, investments, I like what you said about communication. And I personally pulled a bunch of money out of the stock market and I, I invested passively in a lot of different deals. And part, part of the reason for that was I wanted to invest with a bunch of different syndicators to, to see the communication style because I wanted to develop my own. And, um, you know, and then there's some people that, you know, I'll probably reinvest with and there's others that I probably won't. And, and it doesn't actually, what's weird is there's some people that probably gave me a really good return that I won't reinvest with. You know, yeah. just because of, I like doing business with other people, you know, and that's where, you know, which is silly, I guess you could say, well, if this person, you know, brought in a good return, you should, you know, go, but you have the choice of who you want to do business with. So I tell people, and I want to get your take on it from an LP perspective, I, I think most people will say, you know, find out who you want to invest with. I, I say first look at what markets you want to be in. And, you know, do you want to be in Arizona? Do you want to be in Dallas? Do you want to be in Carolinas or Florida? You know, and then once you know the market you want to be in, then find syndicators in that market that you know, like, and trust. And that can take some time, you know. Um, get on their email list. Look at their deals that they're coming out with. Um, sign up for their their webinars, you don't have to invest, but you can learn from that. Um, and then when you pull the trigger, it is easy from the sense that all you have to do as a passive investor is wire the money. So you have to sign some documents and then wire the money. And then that's the extent of the work. But if you're like any of us, there's a lot of emotion that goes into, especially that first deal. Who am I going to give my you know, 50000 or 75000 or $100,000 to. Um, so talk talk a little bit about that, and then we'll get into the, the GP side. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I, I certainly agree with everything you just said. Um, and I don't think that's the example you gave where some, some folks that give you great returns, uh, but you wouldn't invest with them for one reason or another. I don't think that's silly at all. I think it's just that's just natural. That's what happens. You need to invest with someone who is going to make you comfortable also, as well as uh, who's providing the returns. Um, so that goes back to my statement earlier uh, about, you know, in my story about uh, being the uh, sponsors that I invested with that didn't didn't communicate very clearly. Um, I wouldn't invest with, with, with most of those, again, ex with one exception. And that's because the exception is the guy who uh, had the Oklahoma City one that, that did like 60% return. I think he has, a, that, that was a long time ago now. I think he's changed a lot. He has a new business partner um, and they are focusing on a different type of uh, different segment in the market right now, different markets. And I think everything, everything that I've seen from him is I think he'd be very, very, you know, I'd be very comfortable investing with him now. So that's, that's definitely, uh, you know, something for, for consideration, but. Uh, Absolutely. I mean, look, there's some people that they, they learn from it and there's some people that they don't. Right. And, right. and that's the beauty about syndication versus buying stocks. I mean, if you buy Amazon, you can't call up, you know, the top execs and you know get a monthly report. You get the SEC reports, but you don't, um, you know, with syndications, you get to choose who you're going to do business with. And then you get their communication every month. And then you get to decide whether you want to continue to do business with them afterwards. Absolutely. Absolutely. I mean, all right. So talk about the Jeep. So I say it is functionally easy to be a passive, but it's still emotionally hard to part with your money for that first time. But you had positive experiences. I've had a number of deals that have gone full cycle, and I think I've doubled my money on almost every one of them. And that, to me, is huge. I like how I wasn't getting those returns in the stock market. So, all right, now get into the GP side. Hard or easy? 
Um, it's definitely more hard than it is uh, on the LP side, you know, it, but uh, it, it can certainly be done. So it's a matter of persistence and sticking with it and doing like all those that things. Word, persistence. Yeah. It, you have to be persistent. It's not, it, it doesn't just pop up in your lap. You have to be actively out there looking for it and, and form that team, form a team with some people who balance, you know, the, the, what we talked about earlier, figure out what it is you bring to the table, find the right people to balance that out so you can form a team that has the capacity to go out and find source deals, underwrite them, get them under contract and close the deals. So you're in a multifamily mentorship group. Uh, what's the name of it again? Uh, it's uh, Vertical Street Ventures Academy. Vertical Street Ventures. We met in another multifamily group, the Brad Sumrock Group. Mm-hmm. You join a multifamily mentorship group, whether it's Vertical Street or Sumrock or another one. Are you guaranteed to get a deal? I don't know any program where you're guaranteed to get a deal. I think I have heard recently that that some program would was going to guarantee if you, for a higher price point, you get into something within a year or something like that. I, I don't know. I, I, I haven't seen that personally. Um, again, it comes back to your persistence. You, you yeah. have to, you have to work it. You have to work the program you have to put in the time uh, and effort to make it work for you. Um, I saw a lot of people um, who uh, I've seen a lot of people who got educated, get, participated in a mentorship group, and then walked away a few years later frustrated because they never got a deal. And right. I just say, you know what? You have to keep on going. You know, Ed Milet has this book, The Power of One More. Right. You have to put in one more time. One more time. How many times does it take? I don't know. One more. You never <laughs> know when it's that next one is going to be the one that actually gets you there. Right. So I, you absolutely have to do that. So, that's yeah. huge. Whether you, No matter what group you join, if you join a group, you're investing in yourself. And I love the word you use, persistence. I mean, I believe that it's going to, it gives you the opportunity and the knowledge to shrink that time frame dramatically, but you still got to do the work. You still got to go out there and meet the contacts. You still got to build your team. You still got to go out and underwrite the deals. And, and if you're not willing to do that, if all you're looking to do is write a check, then I don't know of a group that's going to hand you a deal. So I'd say save your money if that's, you know, what your expectation is. Yeah, if that's all they want to do is write a check and don't, don't want to do a lot more than that, then perhaps the passive investing track is better for them. Exactly. Like, so now you're focused on who do you want to do business with? You provide them the capital and then they go out and like in my experience, I've, got, I've had, you know, doubled my money, you know, and I wasn't doing anything. Yeah. Um, so that's huge. So there's a lot of uh, other stuff I would love to talk to you about, but we're kind of coming toward the end here. So how would uh, if people want to reach out to you? What's the best way for them to do that? Um, well, the best way I'd say is if anyone who's interested in that KPI or port checklist that I have. Yeah then uh, they can find that online at, uh, it's a short URL, so uh, bit.ly forward slash KPI checklist. And uh, if, they, if they do that and download that asset, they'll get a link to be able to, um, to reach out and schedule a meeting with me also. So that again is, is bit.ly uh, forward slash KPI checklist, and they can get that checklist for free. Um, do you also have a website people can learn more about you on? I do. I do. So my company is called Blue Sky Equity Partners, uh, and they can find that at bluesky-equity.com. Uh, it is, there's no E in blue, but if they put the E in there anyway, it'll still redirect to the right site. <laughs> <laughs> nice. Why is there no E in it? Uh, because that name wasn't available <laughs> at, at that point, at that point in time. Exactly. Exactly. All right. All right. Awesome. <laughs> awesome. Hey, um, you've done so much now. What's kind of the stretch goal for you? Yeah. So I'm looking at a couple different things. Um, right now I'm focusing on, uh, improving the, uh, the size of my equity raise, uh, when I get into deals. Um, I am looking at getting into some multifamily deals this year, but I'm being very selective on which ones I get into. Um, I'm also looking at potentially expanding into self-storage at the same time, certainly not abandoning multifamily, 
but I like the idea of, of self-storage. Um, they're both like probably the most, the two most recession resistant asset classes out there. Um, even during a recession, people need to have, have to have places to put their stuff. Um, and you're also taking some of the emotion that's present in uh, multifamily out of the equation with, with self-storage because it's not someone's home, you know, right. so it's, it's a lot, you know, it's not, doesn't have that same emotion as now you're providing people's homes and, and if they can't pay, then what do they do? And, and the prospect, the prospect of uh, eviction with self-storage, you don't have to mess with all that stuff. You can, they don't pay. You put a, you give them notice and overlock their lock. And, you know, after 30 days or so, whatever the timeline is, then you cut the lock off and auction their stuff off of storage and release. Yeah. So it, it is, it's interesting. It's very, it's, if you understand one business model, multifamily or self-storage, you understand the other. And, you know, I've had people that have been in industrial that said they, they like multifamily in a, in a inflationary environment because the leases adjust every year where, you know, industrial, you have built-in rent bumps. Well, self-storage is even better. Like you buy a property and then, bump the rent on all of them by $5 if the market can stand it, right? Exactly. Yeah. That, that loss to lease you talked about earlier with apartments isn't yeah. there because you don't have like 12-month leases, for example. It's just right. month to month, so you can bump everyone's rent if, if you need to, if it's appropriate. Right, based on supply and demand, so that, that's huge. Mm-hmm. Well, Greg, I appreciate you coming on the show. Um, listeners, I hope that you enjoyed that one. Until uh, next week, signing off. Thanks a lot, Darren. Thank you. Thank you for listening to Darren Batchelder's Real Estate Investing Show at darrenbatchelder.com. If you liked the episode, please provide us with a five-star review on Apple Podcasts or your podcast platform of choice. If you already provided us with a five-star review, then thank you. And please share the show with a friend. <laughs>